So if you want to turn in your Bibles this morning to Micah chapter 5 or flip over your bulletin, it's also um, right there on the back of your bulletin. Title of today's message is, O Little Town of Bethlehem. We're going to start off by talking about a pastor in Scotland many years ago. He was a pastor of a small village church, and he was visited by one of his deacons before the service one Sunday mornings. As the pastor brought out some coffee for them to share, he could tell by the deacon's demeanor that something was weighing very heavily on him. And finally, the deacon spoke to him. He said, Pastor, I came here early to meet you today because there is something that me and the other deacons have been talking about and we want you to consider. There must be something wrong with your ministry and your preaching. After all, there's only been one person added to the church in an entire year, and that is only a small boy. So there has to be something wrong with the way you're doing things, and, and we want you to be in prayer about that, and we want you to consider that um, this morning and everything. And as I was reading this story, I'm thinking, wow, now that's a way to start a Sunday morning. That gives you all the confidence you need to, get, to go and run a church service right after that. And the minister went into the pulpit that day with a very grieved and heavy heart, obviously. And after service, he decided to stay at church and be alone to, to spend some time in prayer. And he cried out to God and asked him why his efforts seem to be in vain, why he doesn't seem to be reaching anybody in the, in the community, why his, his deacons are coming down on him like that. He's doing his best for God. He's living a holy life before him, and yet it doesn't seem like he's having a lot of fruit in his life. And after a while of crying at the altar, pouring his heart out to God, he became conscious that he was not alone. And he looked up and he saw that young boy that had started coming to his churches last year. His name was Robert. And he had just become a Christian. And the pastor asked Robert, you know, what is it? What do you want? And Robert said, Pastor, do you think if I was willing to work really, really hard and get an education that I could become a preacher like you? Maybe become a preacher or, or even maybe even a missionary someday? And there was a long pause and tears filled the eyes of that old minister. After a while, he said, this heals the ache of my heart, Robert. He said, Robert, I see the divine hand now in what I, and why I'm here in this community. He said, yes, I think that it's God's will that you become a preacher. And that boy was named Robert Moffat. And the boy that the deacons wrote off as insignificant fruit of the pastor's ministry became well-known in the courts of heaven. In fact, the measure of that old minister's reward will be found in the gathered fruit of the, of the labors of missionary Robert Moffat. If that name is not familiar to you, he was one of the great African missionaries. He translated the entire Bible into several local languages so that the natives could read the Bible throughout Central Africa in the 1800s. And I love telling you historical stories like this because they show the power of God. They show his faithfulness. They show his sovereignty that we see that if we stay faithful in what we are doing, he will make himself known and he will accomplish his will no matter what. Our Lord Jesus compared our work for his kingdom to be that like a mustard seed. It's a very, very small, almost unseeable seed but when you plant it and you're faithful in tending it it will produce the largest of gospel plants so this morning i want to talk to you about small beginnings god chose one of the smallest and at jesus's time 
of his birth, it was one of the most insignificant cities in Judah for his son to be born in. And as we study the biblical truth found in Micah today, I hope that you will see that God doesn't need a whole lot to work with to accomplish great things. He just needs something or someone that is willing. Keep that in mind as we read Micah chapter 5, starting in verse 1 this morning. Marshal your troops now, city of troops, for a siege is laid against us. They will strike Israel's ruler on the cheek with a rod. But you, Bethlehem Ephathra, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come to, for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. Therefore Israel will be abandoned until the time when she who is in labor bears a son and the rest of the brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. And Father God, I ask, Lord, that as we study the place of your birth this morning, that we will see how God plus one person that's willing to be obedient can make all the difference in the world. How you can use something that is so small, so torn down by circumstances, and yet if there's a glimmer of obedience there, if there's a glimmer of faithfulness there, you can accomplish the impossible. And Father, I ask, Lord, as we study Bethlehem this morning, we will have that lesson driven home. I ask this in your name and for your glory. Amen. So what is it about Bethlehem? What is it that, that, that had God look at Bethlehem and say, that's where I want my son to be born? I mean, after all, if we were to use human thinking, then God really needs a publicist or an advertising firm of some type to speak to him. Because after all, if God really wanted to make a splash, if he wanted Jesus' Jesus's birth to be a big deal to the, to the movers and shakers of his time, then all he had to do is move the place of Jesus' birth about five miles to the north. And he would have been born right in the Temple Mount. Everybody would have seen him. Herod would have seen it. The kings would have seen it. The priests would have seen it. Everybody would have witnessed the birth of their Messiah. So why Bethlehem? What was it about this little village that attracted God to have Jesus born there? And the first thing about Bethlehem that we spoke about a few moments ago is that it was small and insignificant in Judah at that time. Even in the structure of the verse we just read, you can see the prophet was even highlighting this fact. If you attended our Sunday school classes at all, um, when we were in the Minor Prophets, we talked a lot about Hebrew parallelism. That's a, just a big theological term, which means in their written language and conversation, Hebrew people will often use comparison. You see that in this, particularly in the, in the teachings of Jesus when he would tell parables. He would use parables and, and, and different opposites to compare and contrast to make major points. And that is what is happening here in verse 1 when he's referring to Jerusalem. And the contrast here is mighty Jerusalem, biggest city in the, in the entire area. It's surrounded by huge, large walls, practically impenetrable, practically unconquerable at that time. They have a huge army inside these walls. It has a population in the hundreds of thousands. 
Now, that's a big city back in, in that day. Hundreds of thousands of people living there. And then you have Bethlehem. Bethlehem, no walls, no defenses. Population during the time of Jesus' birth was two, maybe 300 people at the most. In fact, it was so small and so undefensible, during the times of major attacks from other countries, the entire population ran into Jerusalem. And to further emphasize the insignificance of this city, during the kingdom period of Jewish history, we're talking about during the time of Solomon and David and that, its population was never even counted during the census times. They never counted Bethlehem. The only time, that, the reason was because the censuses were taken was to number the number of men that would be of military age, so then only the cities or villages that could field at least a thousand men were counted. Bethlehem was lucky to be able to field 25 or 30 men, so they didn't even bother counting them. It's like, you're so insignificant, we're not going to send the census takers to you guys. Bethlehem, at the time of Jesus' birth, was only known as the birthplace of King David. That was the only, their only claim to fame. Otherwise, it was this obscure little town that people had to walk through on the way to Jerusalem. In a way, Bethlehem reminds me of when Tammy and I first drove here to meet with the board of this church to talk about coming here as your pastors. Prior to coming here, Tammy and I had visited just about every part of the state except this area. You draw a line from the Mississippi and around the interstates, this whole Cooley region. We had never, ever been here before. Matter of fact, it probably took us five or six months to figure out what the word Cooley meant. And after that, oofta. What the heck is oofta? <laughs> we kept hearing things like that. It, it took us a while to, to understand that kind of stuff. And when we drove up here, you know, we got off at, at Northfield. We found it to be this little quaint little village. It was nice. Drove up to Pigeon Falls. And we were like, yeah, this is kind of, kind of a neat little town right here. Then we turn on 53, start heading toward Whitehall, and we see a sign, you know, Coral City. And I was like, oh, cool, it's a city. You know, because, you know, for, for months I've been looking, or, you know, for several weeks since since District Summit, and they asked me to consider coming to Whitehall, I, I was looking at maps of Whitehall, and I'm like, well, there's not a lot of shopping there. There's not a, a lot of services there. I was like, Coral City. There's a city there. There might be a Walgreens there. There might be some restaurants, maybe a shopping center. I'm thinking there is a city in Coral City. Yay. Okay, maybe, you know, we have a Walmart or something there. So, you know, we drove up, we got to Highway S and, and 53, and, and we're looking around, and we're like, well, okay, well, it's a state highway, maybe Coral City's down Highway S a little bit, or something. And so we're looking for something that would indicate city center in a small town in Wisconsin. What indicates the city center of a small town in Wisconsin? Convenience store, gas station, church, surrounded by a cemetery, or a bar. Usually indicates city center in a town. Coral City ain't got none of that. I was like, well, that's false advertising. <laughs> Bethlehem would have kind of been like Coral City. It was a group of people living in uh, close proximity to each other, but really, it's not going to be a tourist destination. You're not going to go to Coral City unless you know somebody there. So what did God see in this little town of Bethlehem? What was it about it that made it significant in God's eyes? Well, let's look at some of the historical events that took place there. Genesis 35, it shows that that is the place where Jacob's wife, Rachel, died giving birth to Benjamin. Rachel's tomb is still there on the northern side of the city. 
They still have a monument to, to mark Rachel's tomb there. And her connection to this city is important in biblical prophecy. If you remember Matthew quoting um, this prophecy from Jeremiah when Herod attempts to kill baby Jesus by ordering the deaths of every male child under the age of two, Matthew quotes Jeremiah here and he said, this is what the Lord says. A voice is heard in Ramah, another word for Bethlehem in that area. A voice is heard in Ramah, mourning and great weeping. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So that was one of the, the first uh, mentions of Bethlehem in the Bible. Bethlehem again appears in Scripture when Ruth brings Naomi back to Israel. If you remember the story from Ruth, there's a famine in Israel. Naomi's husband has kind of a, a serious lack of faith. He picks up, takes the family over to Moab where there's food. Um, through various circumstances, everybody dies except for Naomi, Ruth, and a sister-in-law. Sister-in-law decides, well, I'm not leaving. I'm going to stay here. So Ruth um, takes Naomi back to her people in Israel. They end up back in Bethlehem. Ruth is out picking up some of the leftover of the uh, harvest at that time to help take care of Naomi. And eventually catches the eye of a guy named Boaz. Or Boaz. Boaz takes Ruth as his wife. And um, that's pretty much the end of the book there. But this is, you say, well, why is that important? Well, this is where the biblical genealogies matter. Boaz was the father of Obed. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse is the father of King David of Israel. King David of Israel is an ancestor of our Messiah, Jesus. It was a city of David. All this started in Bethlehem because if you trace Joseph's genealogy in Matthew and Mary's in Luke, they all are descendants of David. And, you had, and they had to go back to Bethlehem to register because that was their ancestral home. Now, why did a census ordered by a Roman governor demand that? Well, it didn't specifically demand that. Caesar Augustus could have cared less of where they had to go to register. The thing is, is that order of Caesar was carried out by the provincial governors who were Jewish. Herod was technically a Jew, a watered-down Jew, but he was a Jew. And so he would have made them um, do it according to what the Law of Moses said. And the Law of Moses said, you have to go back to your ancestral home in order to be counted. Now, why was there a census anyway? Well, censuses were done by Rome for two reasons. First and foremost was taxation. And the other one was for the possible draft of a military-aged man. In this case, Caesar Augustus was a man of war. If you read the history of the Caesars, Caesar Augustus stands out and he was always fighting somebody. He was fighting wars out in Germania. He was fighting wars amongst political rivals. He was fighting civil wars inside of his country. He was always out there fighting somebody. And as we know, during our time of terror, wars are pretty expensive, aren't they? And so he had to have this um, census in order to collect enough money to get back into Rome to continue fighting his wars. Those are a few of the significant facts about the little town of Bethlehem. So let's look at the lessons that Bethlehem can teach us. Number one is that anything in creation to be can be used of God. Anything. 
At the beginning of the message, we said that God doesn't need a lot to work with, and Bethlehem fits that standard. A few hundred years prior to Jesus' birth, Bethlehem had actually been a decent-sized city. It had walls, had a thriving economy, had several hundred thousand, or several, excuse me, several thousand people living there, and it had a decent industry. After all, it was on the primary path into Jerusalem, so you, you had inns there, you had entertainment there, you had money changers there, you had all kinds of things there. Well, then this Jewish guy decides to lead a revolt against Rome. And in typical Roman fashion, Rome came down with a couple of legions and wiped out Bethlehem. Anytime you ever heard about the nail that sticks its head up as the one that gets the hammer, that's how Rome governed. You stick your head up, they're going to hammer you, and they're going to leave your city in a shambles, never allow it to be fully rebuilt as a testament to anyone who dares stand up against them. So that was Bethlehem now at the time of Jesus' birth. And yet God still used this little, obscure, rural city to change the world. This little city, a couple hundred people, to change the world. And it shows us that God can use anything, or anyone, or any situation for his purposes. Even a city coming back from, and struggling back from being totally destroyed. How many people do we know that life or circumstances or their own choices have been totally destroyed by life? How many people have you met in your life that have been like that? One of the great evangelists of our time was like that. His name was Steve Hill of the Brownsville Revival is where many people may have known him. I don't know if you know his past, but Steve Hill was a major drug user and a major drug dealer in Texas prior to becoming a Christian. He was a convicted felon. He had been in jail and prison several times. He's one of those people that if he lived here among us, we would want our police chief to pick him up and put him in independence just to get him out of our city. We, we would want him to, to just out of the city. We'd want him either back in prison. We'd want him to die. We would just want him out of our city because he just brought the entire community so down. He's just a drain to our society. Steve told of the night that he was in withdrawal and he was going insane with hallucinations. And desperate, his mother called the local church pastor for help. And one of the pastors came over and he led him to faith in Jesus. And the rest, they say, was history. Steve got into Teen Challenge. Teen Challenge, if you don't know what that is, it's a ministry, an inpatient ministry for people who are addicted to drugs and alcohol or, or have been involved in, in prostitution. He was discipled directly by David Wilkerson. That's a heck of a person to disciple you. If you don't know who that is, he was a pastor of Times Square Church. And Leonard Ravenhill, another spiritual lightweight, right? If you don't know who that is, that's probably the biggest revivalist of the last century and, and teacher of prayer. He became a fiery evangelist. At the Brownsville Revival in the 1990, conservative estimates say that 150,000 people came to know Jesus as Lord under his preaching. Steve had destroyed his life by his own bad choices, and yet God used him anyway. Bethlehem had been wiped off the face of the earth. It had been left in this state of semi-ruin as that symbol of the foolishness of resisting Rome, yet God chose to use it anyway. So what's the application for us? God can use you. God can use this church. Let me say it again. God can use you. 
It doesn't matter how bad you've messed it up. It doesn't matter what sins you've committed. God can use you. You say, well, well what about this? I got this, this sin that I can't get rid of, this habit that doesn't honor God. What about that? Or I don't have enough education. Or, or if I could only find the right mentor, if I could only find the right school or the right church or the right pastor. If I could just find a different job and maybe have more time, make some more money. If only I hadn't messed up my life you know, more, God could use me so much more. If those thoughts are going through your head, this message is for you. There's a scripture I take comfort in whenever I feel like God made a mistake in using me for his kingdom. And that comes from 1 Corinthians 1.27. This verse is for you if you think that God can't use you. Paul said that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. I'll put a little ad, of, ad in there. Of whom I am the worst. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us the wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. God can use you. It's not about you, it's about Him. It's never been about us, it's always been about Him. If you, live, if you, if you have any hero of the faith you come up with, King David, Peter, Paul, John, any of the apostles, any of those heroes from the Old Testament, every single one of them had these things in common. Every single one of them, we, had, we saw their huge triumphs for God. But we also saw some pretty big mistakes. We saw some pretty big failures. And in the end, when you look at them, you could look at these people and say, they're just like you and me. They were dirt having a spiritual experience. One of the last things that the little town of Bethlehem shows us is that that can be an encouragement to anyone that is overwhelmed in life is this. Bethlehem proves to you and me that God's will cannot be thwarted. If God has a plan for you, he will bring it to pass. Think of all the moving parts involved with Jesus being born in Bethlehem. First, God needed to maintain a bloodline. God promised Abraham that his descendants would be as vast as, as, vast as the stars in the sky. He promised him that, that his progeny would be the chosen people. Think of the genealogy that, he, that God then had to maintain to, make, to keep that promise to Abraham. He had to stretch this from Abraham, then through Jacob, and then through David. And if it fails at any point... God's word is wrong and salvation history fails and we all go to hell. It got down to one baby. Do you know that? One child in the Bible. Joash in 2 Kings 11 was the last of David's line that was alive. And his evil stepmonster tried to kill him. But he was hidden away from her by a faithful priest. If Joash would have died, salvation history falls apart. But one man was faithful and kept Joash alive. And the rest is history. Or what about the human decisions that, that had to go God's way? What if Mary had told Gabriel to get lost? I mean, think of what he is asking her. He's, a, he's sitting there saying, 
yes, I want you to go and God's going to get you pregnant and he's, the birth of the Messiah will be through you. And anybody who would think that out would say, wait a minute, you're asking me to be a 14-year-old unwed mother. Uh, Gabriel, I don't know if you've reviewed the law lately. They kill people for that in my time. If I'm an unwed parent, yeah, I'm engaged to Joseph, but if, if I'm found with child, I'm stoned to death. I die. You're asking me to put my life on the line for this. What if Joseph, in his anger, decided to end that engagement and divorce Mary? Yeah, God got you pregnant. What else do you want me to believe? I mean, come on. Think of the faith that it took Joseph to believe Mary. What if they had ignored the order to be even counted in the census? They probably could have gotten away with it. It's not like now. It's not like Caesar Augustus is looking through the rolls of, on his computer. I mean, he would have no idea. Herod would have had no idea. Whoever was in charge of Galilee at the time probably wouldn't have had any idea. What if they decided not to be counted in the census? Then God's word would have been violated because they wouldn't have gone to Bethlehem. What if they stopped early in Jericho? I mean, after all, they could have looked at that and said, you know, I heard Bethlehem's like this little hole-in-the-wall place, and Mary, you're about to give birth, and, you know, I don't want to take you another 20 or 30 miles to Bethlehem. We're right here in Jericho with plenty of inns around. Maybe we should just stay here until after the baby's born. What if they hadn't gone? What if they had gotten there sooner and there was room in the inn? What if the stable already had a couple in it, and they had to keep going and stay in Jerusalem for the night? These are just some of the situations that could have drastically changed the Christmas story. What does it mean for you and me? It means that if something is God's will and he has spoken it over your life, it will always, 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 100% of the time, come true. Period. You can trust him with your life. He already has a plan for you. You can fight it, you can doubt it, and you can disobey. You can refuse to follow him. Ask Jonah how that turns out. If you do so, you're just going to continue to forfeit any chance of joy, any chance of peace, any chance of true prosperity. And you're going to forfeit the future that he has for you, both in this life and in the life to come. God has a plan for you. God wants to bless you. You just need to take that step in faith and go in the direction that he would have you to go. Won't you be like the little town of Bethlehem and let God use you for just as you are? Because our God is an expert at taking something that this life has tried to destroy and tur turn it and create something beautiful out of it. If this, if this message has touched your heart in some way, that you know that there is a promise from God that has yet to be fulfilled in your life, or you feel a call of God upon your life right now, I ask that you be like that little town of Bethlehem, just open, available, and ready to accept the Messiah's plan for your life, because you never know what may be born into your spirit at this time.